Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. No, no problem uh, at, at all. Um, welcome to Evening Words. I'm your host, Dr. James Peterson. I am extremely excited to introduce to you our next guest, Miss Joy Ann Reed, host of MSNBC's The Readout, which airs on Mondays uh, through Fridays at 7 p.m. on MSNBC, and also the author of Medgar and Murley. Miss Reed, welcome to Evening Words. Dr. James Peterson, it's been too long, my friend. Good to see you. Good to it, hear you. Same. It has been. And and I deliberately call you Miss Reed because honorifics is an important piece <laughs> of this incredible book that you have written. And, and, and Joy, let me just say up front, um, this is incredible work. Uh, it is it, it shines a light on the interiority of, of Megger's and Murley's lives that I think we need, and that I think defamiliarizes our sense and our understanding of the civil rights movement and the people who sacrificed the most for it. And it is also just an incredibly sad and emotional book. And so your words, I literally brought tears to my eyes over the course of reading this. So I just want to thank you for 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 the work itself and and let folks know right at the top here that there will be some spoilers in our conversation, but that this, <laughs> this book is really required reading. Thank you so much for doing it. I, 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 that's I mean very it. kind. That's very kind. I know you're a writer, so I appreciate that. Thank you. So I want to, I, I, again, spoiler alert, I want to start a little bit in the middle here because there's so much to cover. We only have about 20 minutes together. I want to <laughs> try to get through as, as much as possible. Um, you know, first, and again, this is the middle of the text. Spoiler alert, folks, Megger Evers was assassinated by a white racist, okay? Um, but but the bookends of that in, in Megger and Murley are the speech that Megger Evers gave when he demanded equal time from the mayor of the city of Jackson, the racist segregationist mayor of the city of Jackson, and the landmark speech by JFK signaling his his shift, I would argue, uh, uh, in favor of, of of civil rights. So can you talk a little bit about those two speeches and yeah. how they animated the the assassination of, of Megger Evers? Yeah, I mean, and, and the speech is something that I think it's, far, I mean, I don't think most people know about it um, unless they've, you know, read Mer- one of Murley's biographies um, or really know Mississippi history. A lot of Mississippians weren't aware of it. They're modern day. But this was a landmark uh, address that Medgar Evers gives. He's the first Black person to ever get to to speak on television. Because remember, at that time, there were no Black anchors. There were no, you know, Black folks on television. Uh, You know, years, even years after Medgar Evers, a lot of Mississippi PBS stations wouldn't even play Sesame Street because it was integrated and they didn't want it shown on Sesame Street, you know, they didn't want it shown on on Mississippi airwaves. So here's this black man who wins a landmark court case. And Medgar filed multiple court cases that wound up being landmark court cases, whether it was about school desegregation, whether it was about the right to march. This is preceding the court cases that we saw John Lewis uh, and et al. win to march in Selma, rights to march, rights to be on the street and, and demonstrated in public. He was filing these cases through the NAACP. But this case goes all the way up to federal court because what happens is the mayor of Jackson, a racist mayor of Jackson, gives a speech in which he says on television, 
Blacks love segregation. Our Blacks are happy. Our Negroes are happy. Mm. We don't need the federal government to come down here and tell our Negroes how to live. They ha- they're happy with segregation. Segregation works for all. The Mississippi way makes everybody happy. Mm. The mega says, no, it doesn't. <laughs> He's in the midst of fighting a battle to end segregation. So they file, he and his cohorts file a, a demand for equal time. And they actually win. And so Megar Evers is set up to give this speech that makes him the first black person a lot of white and black Mississippians had ever seen talk on television. Mm-hmm. And he gives this incredible speech that is um, it's heartfelt. It's serious. He sounds so, in, so intelligent. You know, I hate to you know, we don't want to use the A word that they use on us. and We can speak English. It's our native language. They're like, oh, you can speak English, you know, but but he said he, he articulates this incredible vision that says very plainly, Black folk just want what you have. Mm-hmm. They just want to live like normal people, go to school, send their kids to school, be able to vote. They want the basic civic, uh, ac- ac- they want the basic civic access that you have. And they're no different, Black people, and we're no different from you. Mm-hmm. And this shocks a lot of white people. They're surprised. They're like, wow, that's how a Black person sounds? That's not my maid? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but it, but it, it actually resonates. It, number one, makes him even more in danger because now a lot of Klansmen who hated him and he was on the death list for the Klan, but now they know what he looks like. Right. You know, not every Klansman actually knew what he looked like because, again, Black folks were never, you know, on television. Mm. So yeah. this now puts the spotlight on him in a huge way, but it also impacts the feds because he's been writing repeatedly to John F. Kennedy saying, you got to do something, man. You and Robert F. Kennedy, the uh, uh, attorney general, you need to send the feds down here. You need to send troops down here. You need to send observers here. Black people down here are living almost in slavery. You've got to help. And so this does influence when John F. Kennedy gives his speech um, not long after that, in which he uses some of the same language. He sort of transports some of Medgar's speech into his own and promises to do a civil rights bill. That Medgar was heading to D.C. to testify to the Judiciary Committee uh, to create. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you for that, for the important uh, history lesson. Now, there are a few moments in the text and throughout the text where you don't throw shade, but some of us as readers might think of it as a little bit shady how some of our historically Black legacy organizations operated during these times. And I think you're very careful not to do that, but I'm a reader, so I'm gonna throw a little bit of shade, okay? I think <laughs> first, first, can you talk a little bit about, about and this is early on in the, in, the, in the manuscript, talk a little bit about why it is that in some places, in some spaces, the life, legacy, and contributions of Mega Evers is maybe falling out of history. I guess he's not showing up every place where he should show up, given his 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 role. And then the, the immediate follow up is: can we can we talk a little bit about the politics of the NAACP at that at that time? And and again, I don't want to cast aspersions here, but his family he he did request for additional security. He it was denied. Um, there was an inability for the NAACP to work with the SCLC and other more, I guess, more radical organizations at the time that that Megger was kind of at, he was in the middle of that kind of flashpoint. And so just let's, you know, just talk a little bit about some of the challenges about Megger in history and then the historical challenges with some of our great organizations around the kind of work that he was doing. Yeah, I mean, Megger in history, I think uh, that one's the easy answer because he died in a very momentous year in the history of civil rights and in this country. 1963 was a packed year for <laughs> for, for things that happened uh, and it just overwhelmed him. You know, uh, 
not long after his assassination. Obviously, you have the March on Washington that August. He dies in June and August is the March on Washington, the yes. most famous sort of march in I mean, U.S. history. Um, you have the four little girls bombing a couple weeks after that. And then, of course, in December, you have the murder of uh, the president of the United States. So his history, his assassination gets completely overwhelmed by those events. I think that's the obvious answer. Um, but the thing that's sort of ironic is that his what he was doing is laced into all those events. I mean, one of the things that set Kennedy up for death, um, the moment he gave that speech saying he was going to give a civil rights act, the Klan's reaction was kill Megar Evers and try to kill two other civil rights leaders to say, well, no, you're not. Um, the March on Washington is a reaction to, Ke to Kennedy being too slow. He's taking too long because he's doing a tax cut instead. He's kind of the Ronald Reagan of the 60s trying to do a huge tax cut. And that's his priority to get reelected. And the, you know, the march was in part a response to him. King is the lead speaker at the march, but the speech he gives that everybody misquotes, the I have a dream speech. He mm. gave that speech in Detroit weeks before, but he included in that version of the speech, I have a dream that people like Megar Evers and Emmett Till will get to live to adulthood and live mm. their lives. And he cuts that out because they're trying to soften the speech because the Kennedy administration is terrified that 250,000 blacks are coming to Washington. Right. They want everything softened. They soften John Lewis's speech. They soften his speech. So mm -hmm. go on and on and on. The same clan that kills those four little girls is an offshoot of the same clan that kills Megar, that later kills Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. Cheney in Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney is a product of the NAACP Youth Leagues. He's trained by Megar Evers. You know? So all of these things all connect, but he gets disconnected from them um, because of events. On the NAACP, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, Characters in the book, when you read it, who will seem a bit villainous, maybe a little bit, is the NAACP. But, but, you know, I was kind of warned about that going in. Lots of people who I said I was doing this book said, you're going to find out some things about the NAACP that you may not like. Here, That's right. I was warned about that by people in the NAACP. I interviewed the current president, the current uh, executive director of the NAACP. He was very blunt about the 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 um the failures of the NAACP at that time. You have to understand that, you know, the NAACP, the reason there's an NAACP legal defense fund is that eventually Thurgood Marshall broke from the NAACP. <laughs> Ida B. Wells broke from the NAACP. There were tactical um differences that people had between the way the NAACP wanted to operate and the way lots of people who were considered more quote unquote radical wanted to operate. Megger wanted to operate in the streets. He believed that you can't save Mississippians by having court cases happen in Washington, D.C. Mm. He believed that Mississippians had to stand up and develop their own strength, their own courage, and their own dignity to save themselves. He didn't want Northerners saving them. He didn't even want the Freedom Riders saving them from right. outside. He wanted them to be the Freedom Riders. And a lot of the young people that he was dealing with in training wanted that, too. They wanted to save themselves. They wanted to march. The Tougaloo students, especially, and the Alcorn students, they were willing to put the themselves out there and take the risk. And he was like, that's who we need to support. His bosses, Roy Wilkins and the others in New York, were like, nope, <laughs> that is not the way we do civil rights. We do court cases. We send Thurgood in, we right. send Conference Baker Motley in, and they do the work. You just sign people up for memberships and sign people up to register to vote and shut up. Yeah. And that was the fight. And he had this fight from the beginning of his tenure to the very end. He never stopped. He, um, he, he really came close to being fired multiple times and was confident the night before he was killed that he was going to be fired by Roy Wilkins because he wouldn't stay out of the streets. Mm, mm, mm. He he was very, very, for a very short period of time, he had joined the SELC before the NAACP told him he couldn't. Yes. Let's imagine another timeline, another a, a different timeline. <laughs> what, what, what might have been different if, if Megar Evers had stayed the course with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as opposed to the course with the NAACP? I am confident that Megar Evers would have been John Lewis. 
Because mm. remember, Don Lewis rolled with Dr. King. He he started with SNCC and he ended up kind of riding with Dr. King. And they had a tension too, obviously, between them in the way they operated, but they were more on the same line. He was kind of trained in that world. Jesse Jackson, John Lewis, all those people who came like Dr. Uh, Reverend Sharpton, all the people who gravitated toward the Medgar was one of those. He gravitated to King, even though he's, you know, he's four years older than King. But when he sees what King does in Montgomery, he is captivated by it. He says, that's the way you do it. That right. boycott, because it's about money. It's about keeping our money out of the hands of racist white people. If they won't serve us, they won't treat us with dignity. They won't call us Mr. and Mrs. Why are we giving them our money? Mm-hmm. King and gets there, too. Remember, that's where he was in Memphis. That's what part of the reason he probably got killed, right? Because right. he was going after the money. Um, and so Medgar was right there. He was about economic boycotts, marching. He wanted to be a part of King's movement, so much so that he joined the SCLC, got elected as an officer of the SCLC, and then he would have been doing a literal Kingian style boycotts, street demonstrations in Mississippi. That is what he wanted to do. And that is what he was being ordered not to do to the point where, to your point about the security, at certain at a certain point, one of his bosses tells him, we are not going to provide security. We have better things to do with our money mm. <laughs> to protect you. You need to do your job. And um, they later apologized to him. They apologized to Murley for that because they didn't help him because they were angry. They really felt like he was doing the wrong thing. Yeah, just just devastating. I can't remember the neighbor's name, but there was the neighbor who's, who said that after uh, Mega was assassinated, they never shopped. They, they honored the boycott that he put in place for their local yes. shops for the rest of his life. He, no. he always had catalog. No. We oh, always had that, with Sweets, too. Yeah, Mrs. Sweet. So Miss Sweet is a great character in the book. She's I just actually saw her in Jackson. Um, she and her, her adult, now adult children, one of them is a judge. They're very successful. But, um, yeah, they, they stopped shopping in the stores, uh, in honor of Megar Evers. His neighbor across the street, their neighbor across the street, who was one of Miss, Miss, uh, Murley's best friends. She never shopped in the store. She was the most stylish woman in, black woman in Jackson. And she made her clothes, honey. (laughs) And they all started just ordering McCall's patterns and making their clothes at home because they were keeping up the boycott. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Joy, for our listeners, help help our listeners to imagine a world where signing a petition might mean you lost your job or your mortgage or your business. So imagine a world where you don't have access to any of the public spaces uh, from which your tax base uh, uh, supports. Like this is, I think, what's what gets lost a little bit in our contemporary conversations about voting or should we vote or who to vote for. The world that you depict here, the world of Megger and Murley, is an oppressive claustrophobic world. Help, help our listeners to understand some of the stuff that you detail in the text yeah. of the limits upon freedom of Black people during this time. Right. I mean, just imagine being Black in Mississippi in the 1950s and 60s. You pay taxes just like white people do, but you can't go to the schools your taxes pay for. You go to a, your kids all learn in a shack with all the grades in one room with a teacher who's ill-equipped um, because they are not given books or, uh, you know, materials. They're using second and third hand books that already have writing in them or that have pages ripped out. Your your science classroom has no beakers. You can't do the science experiments. The white kids go in nice school buses. Your kids walk three miles to school um, to an inadequate school, but that's called separate and equal. You pay taxes, but the downtown shops will let you try on clothes. You have to buy them and just hope they fit. You can't bring them back. Once you've tried them, they're considered tainted. You can't eat in restaurants. You pay taxes, but these public restaurants, you have to go in the back and somebody shoves a a plate out of the back if you want to eat that food anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to go inside. You're not allowed to sit at a table and be waited on like a normal person. You can't take your kids to the zoo. 
The zoo is segregated unless it's a specific day that they've allocated for Negroes. You can't go. You can't go in the library and take out a book. Mm. Um, the libraries are only for white people. You can't do just basic things. And, you know, imagine your kids want to go see a movie. You can't go. You, you're not allowed to sit in the main part of the theater. You have to sit upstairs. Mm -hmm. um, you have to sit in the balcony. You're not allowed to sit in the normal. You're not allowed to go through the normal entrance. Your kids can't go to the bathroom. You know, your kids always got to pee. They can't. You can't go to the bathroom if you're driving on a trip. You can't stop in a restroom and use the bathroom. You can't. You have to go to the bathroom by the side of the road. You're basically living very, very not that much different from slavery. You just aren't technically enslaved. Most people worked on plantations still, the same plantations their families were enslaved on. And you can't leave because there's nowhere for you to go and there are no other jobs. And if you register to vote, you'll probably get evicted from that plantation and you'll have nowhere to live and no work. Um, if you register to vote or you join the NAACP, you're going to get caught because the since the Brown v. Board, uh, Board of Education decision, the state has created a spy agency, a literal spy agency called the Sovereignty Commission to fight segregation, where the spies could be anyone from your pastor, your black pastor. It could be your white neighbor, your you know the white person that lives on the next street. It could be the store owner. And if you go into an NAACP meeting, they write down your license plate if you drove there. So they know you did it. They pu the, they'll publish the names of everyone who joined the NAACP so you could be fired. The mortgage holder um, of your mortgage is probably a member of the White Citizens Council, the bank president. And yeah. so they evict anyone they know or pull the mortgage from anyone they know joined the NAACP um, or registered to vote. That's the atmosphere. Fannie Lou Hamer was literally nearly beaten to death for registering to vote and evicted from her plantation where she lived. The, the, there's a, a, a reign of terror over you 24 hours a day. You're constantly being surveilled, watched, intimidated, bullied, and you can be lynched just for looking at a white man, woman, or child the way they don't like. Mm, mm, mm. And it's I, legal because there's no <laughs> legal recourse. If you are killed by a white person, it is legal. They will be they will be acquitted in 10 minutes because all juries are only white men because you can't register to vote. That's so right. you can't be on a jury. So all the juries are white men and women aren't allowed to serve until 68. So it's basically all white men. They, they're going to equip that person, acquit that person in 10 minutes. It's like the purge mm. and the purge, you're the victim is you 24 seven. So you just live in fear. That's the atmosphere in which he's Megara is saying, hey, you want to register to vote? You want to join the NAACP? And they're like, hell no. People were terrified. You have to understand people. It was the most terrorized state in the union, worse than Alabama, worse than Tennessee, worse than South Carolina, the worst of every state. Mm -hmm. The snarling dog of the South. Yes. Um, um, and the, and the, obviously the story of Emmett Till will always, always haunt me. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of Emmett Till's life and brutal murder on Megger Evers and on Murley Evers and on, and on their family? Yeah. I mean, and look, the, the, this is how serious the, the Klan and the terror was in Mississippi. They weren't afraid to kill a Northern boy. Because normally they would stop at northern kids. They were they had a little bit of fear of 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 uh, killing northern kids. This kid lived in Chicago. Now his family was from Mississippi, but they had no no fear of killing this child except a little fear because they tried to cover it up. So Emmett Till is a fourteen year old boy. He comes down to spend the summer with his cousins, um, and uh, they all work on the plantation. You know that's where the the uncle lives, and they just pick cotton during the day, and then they can hang out and have fun. 
So one day they're going out and everybody knows the story now. He goes into a store. He doesn't know that he you know, doesn't really know the culture. So he supposedly whistles at the white woman who owns the store. She tells her abusive, crazy husband. He and his brother come kidnap him and they lynch him and they bury him in the Tallahatchie River. Not really. They throw him in the river and he comes up in the Tallahatchie River. The, Megger investigates this crime and the, he investigates all the lynchings. That's his job as NAACP field secretary. This is his first big investigation. And the thing that enrages him the most about these lynchings is not just that they happen and that they're legal, but that no one ever says anything. Mm. And he has the fact that even in the black community, no one says anything. They they kill, you know, Joe disappears and no one's, and they, people act like he never existed. He just vanishes and no one said, because people are too scared to say anything. Mm. So his thing is, you're going to kill my people. I'm going to tell everybody about it. Everyone's going to know about it. I'm going to publicize it. And you're going to, to court even if you don't get convicted. So he goes out and he convinces not one, not two, but three people to testify at the trial of these two men because they have to they end up having to have a trial because Mamie Till decides that she's going to publicize it. She opens the casket, as everybody knows, it goes in Jet magazine. She takes photographers with her and she opens the casket and then it becomes an inter- a national scandal, really an international scandal. Mm-hmm. So they have to have a trial, even though you know they're going to get acquitted. But he gets three people to testify, including the uncle. And it will, but for him getting those terrified people to testify, there would have been no trial. Mm-hmm. There would have been just like every other lynching in Mississippi. But he gets them to testify, and then he gets them the hell out of Mississippi, puts them on that train to Chicago. $11 train. Mm-hmm. $11 ticket, man. And the thing is, if you go to Chicago and ask people their backgrounds, a good percentage, I would argue the majority of Chicago Blacks are Mississippi Blacks. That's right. Chicago to Mississippi was a straight train ride. And a lot of people went there to get the hell out of Mississippi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're getting short on time. I have so many questions. So so a, cu- a couple of things. There are a lot of love stories that animate uh, uh, your, your book, Megger and Merle. A lot of great ones. I, I wonder if you have a favorite. I mean, there's the one between Charles and, and Megger, which is incredible. There's 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 Merle and her maternal figures, right? Her three maternal figures. There's obviously there's there's Megger and Merle. There the one one I love the most is 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 Merle and, and and Betty Shabazz. But there are a lot of there are a lot of love stories here. This is a book about love, as sad as it is, and as tragic as it is, ultimately a book about love. Do you have a favorite of all these love stories? That's so or- interesting. That's a good question because you know I love Megger and Merle. I love their their bickery relationship. I think it's fun. I just think the way they because he would try to get at her. He just like right. she says up, he says down. She says left, he says right. He just liked to big. He would call her Merle May just to get on her. I mean, he he enjoyed their you know the sort of tussle back and forth, and I do love that. But the girlfriends is one of my favorite stories. Uh, Doctor Betty Shabazz, Coretta Scott King, and. Uh, and Merle Evers, they were the they were the group chat before we had group chats. And I love the fact that they had each other. They turned to each other because they both had they all three had the same tragedy. They were in the same unwanted sorority that no one wanted to be in. Um, but I loved their relationship. And I do think that is one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And they spoke explicitly about revenge in those private conversations. Sure did. Because, I mean, look, if you think about it, you know, there's the trope of the angry black woman. But these were angry women. You have a reason to be angry. Your your loved one is killed. Between the three of them, they're left with 13 children with no no daddy. They were housewives. So they had to figure out how to make money. They had they were 1950s housewives. They had to figure out how to be the become the sole financial support for their kids figure out how to educate them and keep their kids sane and keep themselves sane. 
And, you know, Miss Murley was very open about talking about depression. One of the things you'll learn in this book is that these are people. She talks very openly about needing sleeping pills to go to sleep, being afraid she might overdose on those sleeping pills on purpose because she was so depressed. She's very, what I what I love about Miss Murley is she was, she's real. She's yeah. a real person and she gives gives it to you real. And in my multiple conversations with her, she was very, very clear about even the problems she had in her marriage. So what you're going to see is a real marriage, a real relationship, real friendships, real homegirls, a real group chat, and just real life, but transported, transported to 1950s and 60s Mississippi. Mm-hmm. By my account, it takes about three decades and three trials to hold Beckwith accountable for his assassination of of Mega Evers. Talk a little bit about the research you did to pull all that together and and what does that mean that it took that long uh, for, for, for us to understand here in the 21st century? Well, there's a guy named Mitchell who is a, a reporter for uh, the Clarion Ledger. Clarion Ledger. Ledger. Yeah, for the racist Clarion Ledger. But it had flipped under one of the Clarion Ledger family uh, that was a more more progressive had flipped it turned it into a real paper so mr mitchell found all the the uh the, the main thing that was needed in order to break open the case decades later which is he discovered the sovereignty commission because remember when the sovereignty commission was operating it was operating in secret like it was a publicly known entity that was that went through the governor and that went through the legislature but no one know what it did most people knew the Sovereignty Commission as just a propaganda organization. They would make these videos that would be like propaganda. Look, look at the happy Negroes. They're happy. Look at them over there, you know? And they would mostly do propaganda. But what people didn't know is that they were a spy group. And this is the piece he discovered. They were helping Byron D. LeBeck with defense. They helped when- his defense. This is craziness. They were helping. So on the one hand, the state of Mississippi was putting Byron D. LeBeck with on trial for murdering Megger Evers. But on the on the on, on, with the left hand, they're trying him with the right hand. They're helping his defense. I mean, and and so that broke open the case. And the new Hines County uh, district attorney um, winds up reopening the case based on that new information and also based on Byron D. LeBeck with not being able to shut up for 30 years. Right, he right. bragged about killing Megan Evers for 30 years. So you had that, you had the new sovereignty commission information. And then the thing they didn't have was the gun and the transcripts. And that's where Merle Evers comes in because she made sure that she had those transcripts. She never let go of them. Hmm. So she had that third piece, and then the gun was found in a way that you can just find out in the book. Yeah, I wouldn't spoil it, but it's ridiculous. Come on. Once they get it all, then they they come back and they're able they're able to do the case, which is super important because putting that man in jail set a set a precedent for being able to jail a lot of these old Klansmen mm-hmm. that got away with it, who were gonna retire happy, and no, they didn't. A lot of them ended up mm-hmm. in prison for the rest of their lives. Miss Reed, I'm gonna get you out of here on 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 this note. Uh, Megger and Murley, a love story of for for the ages. But in the work that you do every day, you have to carry some of that weight that you talk about in this book. You got to carry some of the weight as someone who's reporting on the rise of racism or the return of racism and fascism in America. You have to you you you're getting death threats, and I'm I'm not asking necessarily share those things, but I wonder like in doing the research and writing of this book. You had to some of this had to resonate with what your day to day experience is. How do you how do you deal with that? How do you filter out that kind of hate? I mean, I I don't want you to reveal any security protocols or anything like that, but we know you're getting a lot of that hate every single day. Just talk a little bit about how you wrestle with that, how you manage that in your own professional life. The thing that's so funny is the number of people who are willing to send hate emails and sign them with their real names. (laughs) Like 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just interesting. And you read what they, and, and sometimes it'll have what they do for a living. And you're like, this is wild. Like, you really don't, you're really not embarrassed to send this through the mail. I mean, look, the reality is that everything that I deal with uh, reporting on the rise of fascism, reporting on Trump, Trump is a huge trigger for people. You say Trump's name in the wrong tone of voice, his crazies come at you on social media and in real life. It's, it's just part of the, the world. There's nothing that I'm dealing with that is even close to what people like Megger and Merle Evers had to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And I work for a big, strong company that can protect me. You know, politicians who are terrified to vote to impeach Donald Trump because they're afraid of his crazy followers, they also are mostly millionaires who mm-hmm. can protect themselves, who can afford full-time security. And yet they're too afraid to confront him. You have people who are afraid he would tweet at them back when he was on Twitter. Now he can't even tweet. He's on a whole different platform. That The only reason you even know what he says is people like me, reporters or journalists, read his his truth socials to you on TV. So it's right. even third. But to me, I think fighting for democracy requires a certain amount of courage, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sometimes a little bit of courage, you mm-hmm. know, casting a vote. Um, being willing to speak out when he says something crazy, being willing to say it isn't a good idea to put this person back in the White House. Like these are simple things that I am shocked and saddened that people are too afraid to do. Um, I think, you know, I have a platform, but I think politicians have an even more important platform. And what I took from this book, the main thing that I took in researching this book is a story about love, yes, but a story about courage. And we live in a time of tremendous political cowardice. And I hope that we can get to a point where people have the courage to just save the place you live, save the country you live in. Mm. That that requires a little bit of courage, and especially from people who have the means to protect themselves. Megger and Murley had no means. They had Mm. no money. They had no security. They had nothing except their own love of each other, love of their family, love of their community, love of their block, and love of this country. And that's Mm. all they needed to do the most courageous thing you could do, and in Megger's case, to die for all of that and for us. Mm-hmm. Megger and Merle's got to be required reading for all of our elected officials. Miss um, Joanne Reed, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I hope you will make some more time to come back on Evening Words. Yes. You see fit. Absolutely, Professor James. I will be back. Just invite me and I'll be there. Thank you so much. That's Miss Joy Reed, host of MSNBC's The Readout, which airs on Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. and author of the incredible work, Megger and Murley. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. I know you're busy. Go do your thing, all right? Okay. I'm going to go on to the next one. And here, make up here in 15 minutes. If I had known, I would have him come earlier. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Just I hope you're able to come back on sometime soon. We can always pre-tape too, Joy. We can always pre-tape. Oh, cool. Okay, that sounds good. Thank you. It's good to see you, my brother. I appreciate it's great you. Great to see you. Thank you I'm so much. I'm going to tell MED that I was on with you. He's going to be like, Yo, he's going to love that. He's going to love that. <laughs> all right. Thank you so right, much so for the work later. too, Joy. The work is dope. Okay, thank Thank you. you. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. All right. All right. All righty. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com. 